You're listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number four, seven, nine. Hello and welcome back to the first podcast of 2019, number 479. I'm sorry for the silence of these last few months over the Christmas period. However, if you listened to 478, you will have heard I had many reasons I was unable to continue as I had too much on my plate like us all these days. However, we are now at the end of March and the year has started already to roller coaster ahead of me. My studio and office building is now up and dry, but as I'm doing all the work myself, everything seems to be taking longer than I had hoped, so I'm just starting on the interior now. That said, other things that I mentioned in that podcast regarding live streaming, well, the equipment has arrived and there's a couple of test live streams on the YouTube Outdoor Station channel where I was testing the setup in different weather conditions and taking a walk around the Malvern Hills. The video's good, but the audio is naturally a little bit windy. And on that note, if you stay tuned to the end of this podcast, I will tell you about a forthcoming live stream which is taking place in conjunction with Montaigne, where you can actually join in live and ask questions as I look at two of their new lightweight rucksacks. It's all a bit of a test, but it could be good fun. The first live stream of its kind, I understand. But more of that at the end of the show. March, as well as being the start of spring, also sees the annual photography show taking place at the NEC. Once again, I attended, and this time I was looking for very specific interviews which were more appropriate for us outdoor users, such as things to do with action cams, uh, drones and their training, and of course any items to clamp or carry our precious electronics. I was also looking for novel workshops, if you like, with a difference, moving away from the landscape photography and finding someone who can help teach camera owners to take better photographs of important people in their life. And, as you'll hear, I wasn't to be disappointed. So let's kick off with Gorillapod, who were displaying two new unique products which use the Gorillapod base but added the smooth panning facility of video fluid heads on the top. Paul Hill, category manager at Joby, tells us more. Okay, so um, here at the photography show, some of the newest products we've got are the Joby Gorillapod Pro Video Range. So these are based on some of the world's biggest selling Joby Gorillapods, which have just been synonymous for flexibility and portability. You can grip it, wrap it, stand it. And the um, Gorillapod uh, Video Pro, available in two different flavors, but both use this fantastic little fluid head. And this fluid head allows you to get very smooth panning movement, very precise adjustment so you can get your camera exactly where you want it. You combine that with the flexible Gorillapod legs, it means that you could be, I don't know, maybe you're, uh, you know, you're near a fence or something like that, you can wrap it around it. Um, even on, on um, you know, different levels of ground, you can just get the tripod exactly where you want, uh, or even actually just wrap it around to actually hold it in a really comfortable way. 
The uh, pan bar means it's very easy to actually manipulate the head and the sliding plate on it means that you can balance your camera perfectly over the pivot. So it's dead simple to use. I think probably the, one of the biggest things that most people will find when they're starting to video uh, in the outdoors is, is getting the horizons correct. So is there any assistance on there to help with that? Yeah, so um, this head comes with a levelling bubble built in um, and that and combined with a lot of modern uh, mirrorless cameras having their own level built into them as well means that you've just got belt and braces way to make sure that you do get that level and then the smooth panning movement means that you can make use of the fact that you've got that nice level to get some lovely panning shots. Not only that, I'd also really call out the accessory arm that comes with it as well. So this little flexible Gorilla Pod arm fits into the head and means that you can mount accessories, whether that be audio, whether that could be an LED, whether that's a monitor, um, or even a second camera. Um, actually, it just means that you've just got the extra flexibility to just make the kit work exactly how you want it. So these aren't particularly large items or heavy items, but they do come into weight categories. Why is that? Um, so um, I guess because cameras have such a, a wide array of sizes and weights. So the the Video Pro 3K will hold up to three kilograms of kit. And I guess if we equate that into camera systems, they're your smaller mirrorless cameras, whether that be a Sony, Fuji, Canon, something with a sort of a fairly standard size zoom lens or a little prime on it. The 5K Video Pro uses metal legs. Um, that goes up to a four kilogram payload with the head. Um, and that's probably more for the digital SLR cameras, your Canon 5Ds of this world. Something with that little bit more weight and a bit more oomph. And certainly if you're using slightly longer lenses as well, it just means that it's got the ability to handle the, uh, the weight across a wider sphere. Um, also with the metal legs, it's just that little bit more solid and stable. Um, a bit more weight, but well worth it. Yeah, I mean, that was the, the main question really I was going to come back to. Obviously, with, by the time you start getting into um, DLS, DSLRs and expensive lenses, you know, it's quite a lot of money you have invested that's standing on the tripod. So you're going to want something that's going to give you the reassurance that it's going to hold it steady. Totally. And, and you know, certainly, you know, with the Joby product, um, you know, I'm very confident that, you know, if used in the right way and used well, then, you know, it's going to protect that kit and actually make sure that it's, it's doing its job, which is just getting great shots. The, the weight penalty on these items then, so on the 3K version, uh, you're looking at sort of 675 grams for the, and that, does that include the fluid head as well and the accessory arm? It does indeed actually, yes, it's the whole lot. Um, if you look at the weight of the 5K at 915 grams, it is all in the legs. So I guess that's where you take your choice really. Um, if you really are compromised on the amount of kit that you want to take, then the 3K kit is going to be a very capable product. The 5K, if you, if you get not so much concerns, but if you just feel that the requirements have that extra bit of stability is important to you, then that, that's certainly the product I'd look at. Well, the two certainly very popular items, I can see that from the number of people that have been looking at them. Uh, what's, what's the price point we're looking at here? Okay, so the list price on the 3K Video Pro is £114.95, and on the 5K Video Pro, it's £169.95. Action cameras are getting better and better all the time. Smaller, lighter, sharper, high definition, 4K, etc, etc. However, along with that improvement of technology is the associated price tag. 
Now, a brand which is meeting the requirements of outdoor users on perhaps a more realistic budget is SJ Cam, and they now have a new UK distributor. Bart Sislinski was introducing the new range of 4K iron cameras, which start at a very realistic £59. But he was also keen to tell me about the S9 series, which is coming at the end of the year. Uh, we're about to release a new series of cameras, which we call the ION line, or ION series, which stands for uh, Instant On. Uh, this will be a, a totally new series of uh, action cameras from SJCAM, which in some cases will be an uh, improved version of the previous models, and in some cases will also Im- introduce new, totally new features that, that, that have not been seen in, uh, in the SJCAM uh, cameras before. Uh, the series will have uh, three models. Uh, the basic um, uh, SJCAM Carbon 4K, uh, which has uh, 1080p uh, full HD recording, native recording, and an interpolated 4K. Then the middle of the line uh, Totem uh, 4K uh, with uh, gyro stabilization, um, touch display, two inch touch display on the back. Um, and then the top of the line Krypton 4K uh, which has uh, um, 4K at 30 frames per second recording 2.33 inch uh, uh, wide touch display uh, IPS touch display on the back Um, and all three of the models come with a waterproof case and basic accessories uh, such as the uh, base mount, the lens cover and uh, and the USB cable Okay, so let's look at some of the basics then. The battery power is always a big thing when it comes to action cameras. Uh, There's nothing worse than being out there and suddenly finding your batteries have drained. How long do the batteries last on this? And is it the same battery and the same uh, length of time along all three models? Uh, We have been trying very hard to improve the battery life on all of our models. And uh, in the ION series, um, each of the models has a slightly different battery. Uh, the basic carbon has a 900 uh, milliamperes uh, a battery. The totem has a, a 1,000, and the krypton has a 1,200 uh, max battery. So, uh, with the krypton, uh, we're looking at about um, up to three hours uh, recording time at the full HD resolution. Whereas with the carbon, it'd be up to about two hours uh, a full HD recording. Now, I think one of the most interesting things and the, the biggest appeal of this particular range of cameras is the price points that we're looking at. Uh, yes, um, we are trying very hard to make our cameras both very good quality and uh, affordable for everybody so that uh, we have kept the same price point from our previous models with the, all the improved specs of the new ION line. So we're looking at about £59 for the basic carbon uh, 4K, then about um, £99 for the middle uh, Totem 4K and uh, around £149 for the for the Ultra HD Krypton 4K camera. Now these action cameras follow the traditional theme at the moment as being cameras inside a waterproof case with various accessories, but I know there is a new line coming from you, which has got uh, completely waterproof cameras and they're coming out later on in the year. Would you like to tell me a bit about those? Uh, yes, of course. Um, 
we are, SJ Cam is also about to introduce a new series of cameras called SJ9, which follow all the uh, um, SJ uh, series of cameras, starting from the SJ4000 2014 until uh, the SJ8 uh, being released last year. Now we'll be releasing the SJ9 for the for the 2019, and it will have a, a fully waterproof body. So the camera will be waterproof without the case up to 8 meters and obviously will also, uh, um, will also uh, supply waterproof cases for those who would like to go with the camera uh, uh, deeper than the, than the, than the 8 meters um, um, uh, depth. Yeah. So um, with this series we'll only be looking at two models, a top of the line SJ9 Strike with uh, 4K uh, uh, 60 FPS and the SJ9 Max, which will be um, uh, with 4K at 30 FPS. Looking at the sheet that you've got in front of you, they both look to have very similar uh, features, apart from there's a six-axis gyroscope on the Strike. Uh, yeah, so the main difference is the, 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 the improved and better gyroscope stabilization, which is uh, uh, an improved... Uh, uh, electronic image stabilizations we've 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 already been using with our cameras before. Um, apart from that, we'll also have uh, the, the the Strike model will has will have a, um, a superior chipset. Will be uh, featuring an Umbrella chipset, uh, and the and the Max will 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 come with a Novatec chipset, and it will also have a different, slightly different sensor. Uh, strike will be a Sony IMX. Uh, 377, whereas the max will be Sony IMX 117. And I see once again over the current range we discussed previously, these have, have got 1300 milliamp hour batteries. So the lifespan of the actual product, or the working lifespan, should we say, uh, of, of a product if you're out shooting, presumably be longer as well. Uh, we've uh, realized after we've received a lot of uh, consumer feedback that. Uh, Battery life is one of the most important specifications that people are looking at nowadays. Uh, with our first models of uh, cameras introduced, uh, such as the SJ4000, people would uh, sometimes buy up to two, three, even five batteries and then replace the batteries on the go. Nowadays, people are looking for something more stable for you know, a camera that they could be using with only one battery inside. So that's why we have been increasing the battery size and also have been working very, very, very hard to, to, to optimize the software for the for the for longer battery life. Now with the SJ9, the battery is the biggest so far. It will be uh, 1300 uh, milliampere hours, and um, we'll be looking at um, more than three hours of, of a continuous recording for the full HD resolution. After the Gatwick debacle, drones never seem to be out of the news these days. And the confusion over what you can do, where you can fly and what permissions you need to seek or not is resulting in many of these flooding the second-hand market and ending up in the rucksacks to record our outdoor adventures. However, there of course is nervousness about using them. Therefore, training is becoming vital to ensure that your flying technique is safe and you don't land in hot water, legally speaking. 
Alan Proto operates the Phantom Flight School and helps clarify some of the current confusion regarding flying over common land, national trust and maybe English heritage property. When I'm teaching classes about drones, where I start is that the Ford Model T was invented in 1917 and it wasn't until 30 years later that there was a driving test. And it wasn't until 30 years after that that they realized that drinking while driving was probably a bad idea. And so drones are very new, the legislative environment is very new, and people's understanding of the legislative environment is poor. But actually, globally, the rules around drones are coalescing around some sensible criteria, which are don't fly drones in places where they could harm other people or other people's property, including other aircraft. And I think that once people widely understand, keep the drone below 400 feet above the ground, because general aviation flies above 500 feet, and don't fly near airports, then you've solved a majority of the problems. So the issue is not the legislative framework that's in place, it's stable, it's well considered. The difficulty is that not enough people know about it as yet. You know, we all know the speed limit on the motorway, we don't always abide by it, but as yet not enough people understand the rules around drones. And I think that sums it up in a nutshell, because with recent news, at Gatwick being very topical at the moment, but also uh, privacy laws and other uh, images that you see on a regular basis on, on television, whether people have used drones in something dramatic or they've used it as some sort of news gathering, there's always a question mark in my mind as a viewer wondering, well, I didn't realise, I didn't think they could fly over there to take that picture and do that particular thing. So I think there is a lot of confusion out there, um, particularly with what you can do, where you can do it, and, and if you have to gain permission, where you get that permission from. Good. So the general rules, uh, you mentioned privacy. Well, privacy is the Data Protection Act, and that applies whether you're using a long lens as a paparazzi or whether you're flying your drone. Uh, you may not photograph or film people in their private space, and if you do, you're obliged to destroy that film and certainly not use it in any kind of public broadcast sense. Uh, once you move away from the privacy position, then you have the rules around how close to people, how close to buildings, where can you fly and where can't you fly. Uh, and those rules are laid down in legislation and they apply to every drone pilot. When you see footage in the media and wonder how that was achieved, it is also the case that if you write to the CAA with what's called an operational safety case, then you can request a variation in the rules. Equally, the military, the police have carte blanche to fly drones anywhere where they feel that will be of benefit. And I think there are some tremendous good news stories around search and rescue, around securing crime scenes, around managing uh, uh, people movement around large events using drones in a really positive way. There's also the other side of it as well where a lot of our listeners are in very rural locations, very isolated locations, and I've heard stories of obviously drones being used to cover a large area of ground looking for lost people, whatever it may be. But then you've also got the other side of things where in this country, you know, the, there is common land and there is private land, there's common land, then you've got national trust and you've got the English heritage. What's the ruling on, on covering that sort of area? So the rules are pretty straightforward, really. Uh, we have the right to use common land as we see fit. 
equally, public footpaths are available to the public and it is perfectly legal to take off and land your drone on a public footpath or on common land. Once the drone is in the sky, then it is controlled by the air navigation order, which basically gives the right to people in the UK to fly anything, a small aircraft, a glider, a hang glider, a microlight, a drone, in the sky over anything. So the National Trust and English Heritage, you're right, have said you may not take off and land on our property, and they're perfectly within their right to do that. What they can't do is stop people overflying their property once the drone has taken off. I see. So if a footpath is going across National Trust property, is that a grey area then? It's not a grey area. Uh, it's very clear. The National Trust is a peculiar situation in that they have the ability to pass bylaws that, in effect, trump the general permission to use a public footpath. So when we teach people, and we taught a thousand people how to fly drones last year, what we explain is step one is find a public footpath. Step two is check that there isn't a bylaw that trumps that public footpath general permission. And generally speaking, the National Trust are very good at putting up a sign that says, as this footpath comes onto our property, these are the rules that apply. I think that's perfectly reasonable. Okay, that's interesting. So as you coming on to the courses, this is obviously the next question. Tell me about your courses and then tell me how long they last. Thank you. So we, we, I mean, we call ourselves the home of responsible drone flying and our goal is really to introduce as many members of the public to a sensible understanding of the rules and regulations but also give them the tools to fly their drones safely and effectively. Uh, I've got 12 pilots, all commercially qualified pilots around the UK who teach people the nuts and bolts of flying a drone safely and effectively. And that key bread and butter product is a two hour one-to-one -one lesson with an experienced pilot and that costs 200 pounds. So, so the, the, the pilot comes to you or do you go to the pilot? Uh, you go to the pilot. Okay. So 12 locations around the UK from the Isle of Skye through Edinburgh all the way down to Bristol and Bournemouth in the south of the country. Then we also run a course to uh, commercially qualify people. It's called the Permission for Commercial Operations. And that's the certificate you have to receive from the CAA if you wish to fly in congested areas and or if you wish to earn money with your drone. Because that's a grey area, isn't it? Well, it's a grey area. That's a, that's a, a clear area. But if you're using material recorded on a drone commercially, and that is presumably selling it to somebody, there's money changing hands. But what about if you're doing it like I might do it, for example, for my own videos, which somewhere in the video I'm selling something. That's the grey area that I'm confused over. Again, I don't think there are grey areas. Uh, I, unfortunately, I have a background as a, as a lawyer, and so I tend to see things in black and white. And the CAA have been very clear that if there is consideration, the promise of consideration, or the expectation of consideration, then that is commercial work. But they've also said that if you film your friend's wedding and he gives you a bottle of wine to say thank you, that doesn't count as valuable consideration, but a case of wine does. <laughs> so it's not a grey area, but the line is between one bottle and six bottles. Okay, then just make sure it's cheap wine. So getting back to your courses. Always is. Getting back to your courses. Yes, so 
one-to-one -one lessons, teaching people the practicalities of drone flying, and we've taught everyone from complete beginners to the natural history team at the BBC who made Blue Planet. So we teach everyone from beginning to end. Uh, we also run the commercial course, and that's a three-day course, and it costs a thousand pounds. And that's a very practical course designed to teach people the rules and regulations, but also how to fly safely and effectively, and how to plan missions correctly so that it is, it is safe every time. I mean, to give you an idea, we supported people while they flew four and a half thousand flights last year without so much as a broken propeller. So if it's done well, it can be extremely safe. If it's done badly, you make a jigsaw with your drone quite quickly. Okay, okay. well, um, considering these drones, I suppose, are, are costing £800 upwards, really, and they can get very, very expensive, but obviously that's a different sort of marketplace. The least expensive way for them to get some basic training around the country is a £200. It is. If you buy the drone from us... <laughs> oh, you sell them as well, do you? We do. What a coincidence. <laughs> then you get a one-hour lesson for free. So that's another way that we're hoping to support people in responsible drone flying, is that so long as you spend more than £750 with us, then you get a free lesson. Just for your listeners' sake, if they have any questions around drone use, if they see drone use that they're concerned about and would like to understand more about it, we're very much here to help with that. We are the CAA's official drone partners. We work very closely with them on getting the message out there around considerate, safe, sensible drone use. And we see it as part of our mission to help people to understand that better. No matter where you are in the world, you no doubt have a variety of plugs, leads, attachments, gadgets you take with you on your outdoor adventures. Some of these items may be expensive and need protection, and some may be more delicate. Some maybe have sharp edges, which need isolation from your more expensive Cuban fibre and Gore-Tex items inside the bag. Dogan Dogan is from Low Pro Bags, and he was keen to show me the new soft gear up range and the lightweight hard side cases, which will be of great interest, I'm sure. Plus, the new rucksack designed by them for serious landscape photographers. We've obviously seen a trend in uh, people carrying cameras. Um, photography is becoming bigger and bigger now with um, smartphone photography. Um, but if you want to take that extra quality, then you probably want to take a, more of a, a professional camera with you, should we say. Um, and they're coming, becoming smaller and smaller. So at Lowepro now, we've got cases that can do that um, and various little pouches that you can store these in um, and keep it nice and tidy and safe. And you can then put that little pouch or bag into your everyday pack um, for you to go walking, hiking um, or whatever you wish. Okay, so let's take a typical scenario then. Uh, there will be people that will be doing hiking and backpacking as their normal activity. And they might have, as you say, a small APC camera with the chargers, with the various batteries, with the various leads that they need to last them a few days, uh, possibly even a solar charger as well. What have you got that might suit their needs? Okay, so um, we've got a, a fairly new range called Gear Up. Um, as the name suggests, you know, put all your gear in, but it's mostly for loose cables that you'd normally find in your bag. You know, we, it's endless amounts of cabling now with all our chargers, headphones, um, USBs, etc. So, I mean, what, what these little pouches do, they, they allow you to 
um, organize your equipment. You can label the little pouches up as well and um, keep everything well organized and protected. The important thing there is, um, you know, keeping these, this expensive gear protected. But especially with cabling, it's, it's just, um, it gets tangled and gets damaged. So by keeping it well organized in our gear up pouches, um, you know, it, it extends the longevity of the, of, of the product. You've got a variety of pouches here on the stand showing that there's new items. Uh, the, the softer pouches there uh, about the size of, uh, I suppose, a lunchbox, a reasonable size lunchbox. Yeah. And that itself is water, uh, it's not water resistant, it's water resistant rather water than water Yes, exactly right. Waterproof. Yeah. And it's got a couple of uh, padded pouches inside it. But I'm quite interested in these impact protection cases that you've got. And I they see they start really small about the size of a... Well, a two-egg egg box, I guess. Yeah, you could, you know, easily. Co well, this is this is the hard side collection. Um, again, a new collection for us at Low Pro. Um, yeah, as you said, the smaller one there, the hard side CS20, is designed for a, a small compact camera or something like a GoPro. Um, and it, you know, it'll keep it nice and safe. As you said, it's got a hard shell um, with a, a zip a zip around the edge, so it's easy access. But you you can be, you know, you can rest assured that your gear is going to be safe in there. The other thing about these these hard cases I can see, which would be very practical, is for the people that have sharp items like plugs and uh, anything with a, a tip on it or a plastic point on it, they want to protect from uh, from the rest of the material they have inside their, their rucksack. So it works both ways, the protection aspect. But give me an idea or give listeners an idea of the sort of sizes, uh, weights and, and prices of these boxes. So in the, in the hard side collection, we've got four different bags, um, ranging from uh, the CS20, right up to the CS80. Um, the CS80 is the larger one and you can carry several items in there including drones um, like the, the new DJI uh, Mavic for example, um, GoPro or like a Joby Gorillapod. Um, so as you said, mentioned, you mentioned cables and chargers, yeah this, this will keep those, those items safe as well as keeping the rest of your gear safe and out of the way. Um, in terms of the pricing, you're looking at anything between £20 right up to £40 uh, for these bags. So, in the, in the you know, long scheme of things, it's, it's an in inexpensive purchase to keep what is considered expensive items nice and safe um, and secure. Okay, and the big question with my audience is the weight penalty. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, I mean, yeah, with all, all the bags we are designing nowadays, um, we're trying to keep them as light as possible and ensuring that we still have the protection there. But you're looking no more than 200, 300 grams for these bags. So fairly lightweight, really, um, you know, in consideration to what you're going to be carrying. Okay, I'm taking this a stage further to the other end of the scale. I see you've also got a new range of rucksacks, which are specifically designed for the outdoor photographer. Mm -hmm. But you've actually taken on board a lot more of the rucksack technical features that you perhaps have done in the past with a bag that will just hold cameras. This actually is a, a specifically designed rucksack from the ground up. Yeah, for it's, it's for that outdoor user. So this is the this is the powder. Um, so this is our new collection um, launched last late last year. Um, we've started to see stock coming now. So this is a first for this show. But um, yeah, it comes in two colorways. So you've got the blue and you've got the orange and gray. Okay, before we go any further, we, are we talking 50 litres, 60 litre rucksack? So this is roughly about a 55 litre rucksack. Okay. Um, it has a split split design, so you have a 60-40 a, a split, shall we say. You've got a camera compartment down the bottom, 
and a non-camera compartment at the top. Um, so it allows you to put, you know, keep all your camera gear nice and safe, um, you know, full frame body, attached with a uh, lens attached with a couple of spare lenses as well. Okay, if I can just interrupt you there, yeah. uh, try and describe this for, for the listeners. Yeah. The actual access point for the camera equipment, the lower section of the rucksack, is from the shoulder harness side rather than from the front of the rucksack, so it's from the back of the rucksack. Yeah. Uh, and that is the, the lower two-thirds. The rucksack itself is constructed, uh, well constructed, with a good padded uh, hip belt and shoulder straps, shoulder harness, mm -hmm. and plenty of compression straps. And there's quite a few features that are ideal for the travelling or landscape photographer, which I'm sure you'll come on to. Yes, so um, as you mentioned, yeah, the, the access to the camera gear is at the back, so this is kind of a, a secure, security feature, I guess, but also when you're outdoors, um, if, you, if you put your bag down, you tend to put, you know, it's, it's usually in a muddy, wet kind of conditions. So putting the bag down on the front side, it means it's keeping the back of your bag nice and dry and clean, because that's what's going to be going essentially on the back. When, once you uh, want to access your camera gear, so undo the zips at the back, open it up, and then you'll find a, a unit at the back there with all these um, dividers. These dividers allow you to keep your lenses and your cameras in, um, in their own compartment, should we say. This, this is a modular system, so you can configure it to your specification. So if I can just, once again, interrupt. So yep. that's a tray, yep. that, a padded tray that has uh, padded compartments, Velcro-based compartments, so you can adjust it to virtually any size of uh, camera need that you might have. Right. Um, and then the whole tray is actually removable. Correct, yes. So this is almost an independent um, compartment unit, should we say. It will come out. Um, it's, it has its own cover with its own zips and the handle, so you could potentially take this unit out. You know that all your camera gear is stored in there, nice and safe. You can leave that um, to the side and you can then take your bag out and use it as an everyday day pack um, and fill it with the rest of the gear that you'd, you'd normally carry um, without taking all your camera gear with you. Right, so to access um, the non-camera compartment, should we say, it would be from the top with a, a bungee cord um, on the top there. Pull that open and you've got quite a large capacity to carry non-camera gear, clothing, uh, food, etc. Um, it'll keep it nice and dry. As I said, this bag is highly water resistant and it does come with an all-weather cover as well, so that's included in the bag. Um, you've got room to put a hydration pack, a bladder in there, um, and it allows you to um, feed that through. through yeah, if I can just uh, again add to your description here, the bladder uh, compartment is actually on the side of the pack rather than at the back, uh, which is uh, unusual, but it also allows you, if you weren't to use the bladder compartment, you can use it for other camping equipment. The other side of the, the pack has a very unique, uh, nice little feature for carrying tripods. Tripods, as we know, can be all shapes and sizes and they can be extremely bulky and uh, not do your, your, your um, carrying rucksack uh, any favour sometimes. Uh, but this has got a, a unique flap that comes out of a, a hidden zip that has got a, a pocket for the bottom of the tripod to slot into. Correct, yeah, so this is your tripod pouch. Um, and it's only there when you need it. So obviously, if you're not going to be carrying a tripod, you can keep it tucked away, nice and neat, out the way. Um, but then the straps along the side of the bag can be used for other things, um, walking poles. It can be used for um, carrying, I don't know, a, ja a jacket or something that may not fit in your bag. Um, you can carry it on the side. These straps are very useful for more than just a tripod. 
I see also the lid's a floating lid as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so that allows the capacity to, to vary as, you, as you're hiking. So yeah. all in all, it's, it's quite a good compromise between a decent rucksack and a camera-friendly product. Uh, is the lid completely removable so if you wanted to, you could save weight there? Yes, so you, you could take the lid off completely. Um, it's got plenty of pockets in there actually, so you could use it as a little, um, I don't know, you could, a little pouch of its own really to carry separately. Um, but yeah, if you wanted to reduce the weight, you can take it off, but it does then um, expose you to the elements um, and um, obviously if it's started to rain, you're, you're, you're risking it. Okay, okay. Well, it's obviously a well-featured product and uh, for all that, I'm sure it's not going to come in at the cheapest end of the market. So, what sort of price are we looking at here? Um, you're looking at just over £300 for this bag, uh, £309.95. Um, however, in the grand scheme of things, when we look at um, the market, it, it is competitively priced. Um, so, yeah, I believe it's, you're getting a, a lot of bag for your, for your buck. There are usually only two big reasons you might buy a camera to capture landscapes or to record and capture people. It was interesting to see a reduction in stands offering landscape workshops this year and for the first time a stand offering portrait tuition was presenting their service from an entirely unique perspective as Natasha J. Bella now explains. I run workshops for uh, beginners in photography or for those that are uh, experienced in photography but maybe in different genres like um, landscape, wildlife, travel photography or product photography and haven't got the experience in studio and uh, working with models. So my workshop is an introduction into how to prepare for a photography shoot, uh, a model photography shoot how to um, express your ideas, how to compose an image and communicate with the model, and, um, and how to direct and understand poses. You're unique in what you're offering in that a lot of studios run by photographers will teach people similar things. However, your background is completely different and fresh, and I'm sure gives people a much more reliable understanding of what's involved in the process. So just give us a little bit of an idea about your background before you started doing the courses to give people more of a flavour of what their, their understanding might be. Yeah, that's right, because um, photographers usually train photographers, but I've been modelling for 10 years and I developed the workshops because after working with several photographers of, um, well, hundreds of photographers of varying standards, I've learned over time what their difficulties might be, uh, what worries them and concerns them during a photography shoots. So I've collated all of that experience over the years and been able to pass that knowledge on, those tips and the suggestions to make a, a, photog a model photography shoot run more smoothly. So give me an idea of your courses then. Is it one course you do or do you do a range of different courses, different lengths, etc.? Um, I do one-to-one -one tuition and I do workshops that are for up to six people. We cover four different genres, that's uh, uh, portraits, glamour, boudoir and fine art nude. So people have come to me with very little experience and knowledge in those areas and uh, they all get equal shoot time and they go away with um, the starting point of a portfolio as well. 
from your experience then and running these courses now and having come from the background that you have done, what would you say was the most similar problem that people face when they come to the courses then explain what their difficulty is there must be one particular thing that they find really really difficult usually directing how to direct a model that seems to be the number one thing but also nervousness I've had people say to me that um, they are they do have ex a lot of years experience in photography but it might be in another genre so they feel intimidated and awkward going into a studio and feeling as though they don't know what to do or where to start so that's a, a very common feeling amongst people as well so it's a nice easy introduction into how to handle lighting and how to um, prepare and start a shoot a studio can be a very sterile place, can't it? I mean, it can be a very lonely stage for both the model and for the photographer. So, presumably, you encourage them to experiment and get comfortable. That's right. I, um, uh, I think one of the key things that I like to um, convey to people is that there's... Um, a rapport that you should be aiming to build with the person that you're working with. So um, first of all understanding the environment that you're going to uh, shoot in so that you have some familiarity with sets and uh, the lighting that might be there but then also taking extra time to have a cup of tea with the model um, and chat through the ideas that, uh, of the shoot ahead and just um, talk about the weather. We're British, we know that's a, a great thing to be able to talk about. Um, so just find some common ground, get that communication going. It makes it a lot easier throughout for both of you to be able to communicate ideas to each other. And finally then, for people interested in taking one of these courses, whereabouts are they based? Are they based all around the country or in one particular place? Um, I've been running the workshops in my own studio in Leeds for the last couple of years. I'm now held, holding them in uh, Liverpool, Milton Keynes and Swindon and those locations will be expanding further around the UK. I presume all the details will be on the website? On my website www.natashajbella.co.uk my thanks to all the guests that took part in this show. Please check out the show notes over on theoutdoorstation.co.uk for direct links, images and more information. Now, I mentioned at the top of the show a forthcoming live video stream in association with Montaigne. This is where I will be examining two of the new 2019 lightweight Montaigne rucksacks live on YouTube. And you, the viewer, will be able to join in asking relevant questions. It's almost as if you were there with me. Montaigne will be in the chat room of course on YouTube helping things along and offering any technical support. As far as I know this is the first UK live stream on outdoor products and if the concept is a success I will do the same with other items of interest. It looks like it's going to be a Thursday evening early in April and if you would like to be kept informed, please join the newsletter over on theoutdoorstation.co.uk or subscribe to the Outdoor Station channel on YouTube. You'll get an automatic update then when it's about to go live, I think. I'll also be putting it out on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter once the date has been finally confirmed. It's exciting times. There's a whole new technical outdoor world out there. Are you scared? I am. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear or see more from our extensive free library, please visit 
theoutdoorsstation.co.uk. Music